0: When all of it comes out, who is, in fact, engaged to Ernest? Oscar Wilde, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. If you've enjoyed the Classic Tales over the years, please consider becoming a supporting member. Making a monthly donation really helps us to create a support flow we can count on. If you can step up with just $5 a month, that really helps us to keep moving forward. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter. You'll get a monthly code toward any digital audiobook download as a thank you gift. It's a great deal and a great feeling. Thank you so much. And for those of you with the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Beta testing for the Air app is going well, and there's actually a new update for it, which smooths things along nicely. It's a handy tool to share Oscar Wilde's pithier moments with your friends on social media. Share your air quote with me on my Twitter feed, at B J Audio and I might give you a shout-out and feature you on the podcast. Also, be sure to check us out on Spotify. They are beginning to feature us here and there, and we appreciate it. Here's the story so far. Jack Worthing is known as Jack in the country and Ernest in town. He has invented a reprobate brother whom he's given the name of Ernest. His best friend Algernon... Likewise has an imagined acquaintance named Bunbury, an invalid whom he visits when he wants to escape the tedium of town. Jack is in love with Gwendolyn, Algernon's cousin, but Gwendolyn's mother, Lady Bracknell, is not to be overlooked. After giving Jack the third degree, it is discovered that Jack doesn't know who his parents are, and that he was discovered as an infant in a handbag in a railway station. After recommending that Jack acquire some parents post-haste, Lady Bracknell has left Jack standing dumbfounded, while Algernon plays the piano in the adjoining room. And Jack's head is spinning as he wonders what to do. Meanwhile, Algernon goes to Jack's country house as well, masquerading as Jack's profligate brother, Ernest, Introducing himself as such, he woos and is quickly engaged to young Cecily, Jack's ward. When Jack arrives, he demands that Algernon leave, and Algernon feigns to do so. In the meantime, Gwendolyn has traveled to Jack's house in the country, and meets Jack's ward, Cecily. Again, Cecily is engaged to Algernon, who introduced himself as Ernest, and Gwendolyn is still persuaded that Jack's name is Ernest, "'as she only knows him when he is in London. "'And now, The Importance of Being Earnest, "'part three of four, by Oscar Wilde. "'Pray, let me introduce myself to you. "'My name is Cecily Cardew.' "'Cecily Cardew?' said Gwendolen, "'moving closer and shaking hands. "'What a very sweet name. "'Something tells me that we are going to be great friends.' "'I like you already more than I can say. "'My first impressions of people are never wrong. "'How nice of you to like me so much, "'after we have known each other such a comparatively short time,' said Cecily. "'Pray sit down. "'I may call you Cecily, may I not?' said Gwendolen. "'With pleasure. "'And you will always call me Gwendolen, won't you? "'If you wish.' "'Then that is all quite settled, is it not?' "'I hope so,' said Cecily. They both sat down together. Gwendolen thought it best to take the initiative. Perhaps this might be a favourable opportunity for my mentioning who I am. My father is Lord Bracknell. You have never heard of Papa, I suppose. I don't think so, replied Cecily. Outside the family circle, Papa, I am glad to say, is entirely unknown, said Gwendolen. I think that is quite as it should be. The home seems to me to be the proper sphere for the man. And certainly once a man begins to neglect his domestic duties, he becomes painfully effeminate, does he not? And I don't like that. It makes men so very attractive. Cecily, Mamma, whose views on education are remarkably strict, has brought me up to be extremely short-sighted. It is part of her system. So do you mind my looking at you through my glasses? Oh, not at all, Gwendolen. I am very fond of being looked at. Gwendolen examined Cecily carefully through a lorgnette. You are here on a short visit, I suppose? Oh, no, I live here, said Cecily. Really? said Gwendolen severely. Your mother, no doubt, or some female relative of advanced years, resides here also? Oh, no, said Cecily. I have no mother, nor, in fact, any relations. Indeed. "'My dear guardian, with the assistance of Miss Prism, "'has the arduous task of looking after me,' said Cecily. "'Your guardian?' "'Yes. "'I am Mr. Worthing's ward,' said Cecily brightly. "'Oh! "'It is strange He never mentioned to me that he had a ward. "'How secretive of him! "'He grows more interesting hourly. "'I am not sure, however, that the news inspires me "'with feelings of unmixed delight.' Gwendolen stood and walked over closer to her. "'I am very fond of you, Cecily. "'I have liked you ever since I met you. "'But I am bound to state that now that I know that you are Mr. Worthing's ward, "'I cannot help expressing a wish you were, well, just a little older than you seem to be, "'not quite so very alluring in appearance. "'In fact, if I may speak candidly, pray do,' said Cecily." "'I think that whenever one has anything unpleasant to say, "'one should always be quite candid.' "'Well,' said Gwendolen. continuing, "'to speak with perfect candour, Cecily, "'I wish you were fully forty-two, "'and more than usually plain for your age. "'Ernest has a strong upright nature. "'He is the very soul of truth and honour. "'Disloyalty would be as impossible to him as deception. "'But even men of the noblest possible moral character— "'are extremely susceptible to the physical charms of others. "'Modern, no less than ancient, "'history supplies us with many most painful examples "'of what I refer to. "'If it were not, indeed, history would be quite unreadable.' "'I beg your pardon,' said Cecily. "Gwendolen, did you say Ernest?' "'Yes.' "'Oh! "'But it is not Mr. Ernest Worthing who is my guardian. "'It is his brother, his elder brother.' Gwendolen sat back down again, squinting in dismay. "'Ernest never mentioned to me that he had a brother,' "'Cecily replied. "'I am sorry to say that they have not been on good terms for a long time. "'Ah, that accounts for it. "'And now that I think of it, "'I have never heard any man mention his brother. "'The subject seems distasteful to most men,' said Gwendolen. "'Cecily, you have lifted a load from my mind. "'I was growing almost anxious.' It would have been terrible if any cloud had come across a friendship like ours, would it not? Of course you are quite, quite sure that it is not Mr. Ernest Worthing who is your guardian. Quite sure, said Cecily. In fact, I am going to be his. I beg your pardon? Cecily replied rather shyly and confidingly. Dearest Gwendolen." There is no reason why I should make a secret of it to you. Our little county newspaper is sure to chronicle the fact next week. Mr. Ernest Worthing and I are engaged to be married. Gwendolen rose quite politely, stiffening in every extremity. My darling Cecily, I think there must be some slight error. Mr. Ernest Worthing is engaged to me. The announcement will appear in the morning post on Saturday at the latest.' "'Cecily rose also very politely. "'I am afraid you must be under some misconception. "'Ernest proposed to me exactly ten minutes ago.' "'And she showed her her diary. "'Gwendolyn examined the diary through her lorgnette carefully. "'It is certainly very curious,' she said. "'For he asked me to be his wife yesterday afternoon at five-thirty. "'If you would care to verify the incident, pray do so.' and Gwendolen produced her own diary. I never travel without my diary. One should always have something sensational to read in the train. I am so sorry, dear Cecily, if it is any disappointment to you, but I am afraid I have the prior claim. It would distress me more than I can tell you, dear Gwendolen, if it caused you any mental or physical anguish, but I feel bound to point out that since Ernest proposed to you, he clearly has changed his mind.' Gwendolen meditated upon that. "'If the poor fellow has been entrapped into any foolish promise, "'I shall consider it my duty to rescue him at once, and with a firm hand. "'Whatever unfortunate entanglement my dear boy may have gotten into, "'I will never reproach him with it after we are married. "'Do you allude to me, Miss Cardew, as an entanglement?' asked Gwendolen. "'You are presumptuous.' On an occasion of this kind it becomes more than a moral duty to speak one's mind. "'It becomes a pleasure. "'Do you suggest, Miss Fairfax, that I entrapped Ernest into an engagement? "'How dare you! "'This is no time for wearing the shallow mask of manners. "'When I see a spade, I call it a spade.' "'I am glad to say that I have never seen a spade,' said Gwendolen satirically. "'It is obvious that our social spheres have been widely different.' At this point Merriman came in, followed by a footman. He carried a salver, tablecloth, and plate-stand. He began setting out the tea-things. Cecily was about to blast off an amazing retort, but the presence of the servants exercised a restraining influence, under which both the girls chafed. "'Shall I lay tea here as usual, miss?' said Merriman. "'Yes, as usual,' said Cecily. Merriman began to clear the table and lay the cloth there was a long uncomfortable pause cecily and gwendolen glared at each other electricity crackling in the air between them are there many interesting walks in this vicinity miss cardio said gwendolen quite politely oh yes a great many from the top of one of the hills quite close one can see 5 counties said cecily 5 counties I don't think I should like that. I hate crowds. I suppose that is why you live in town, said Cecily sweetly. Gwendolen bit her lip and beat her foot nervously with her parasol. Gwendolen looked around. What a well kept garden this is, Miss Cardew. So glad you like it, Miss Fairfax. I had no idea there were any flowers in the country. Oh, flowers are as common here, Miss Fairfax, as people are in London. Gwendolen glanced at her through the tail of her eye. "'Personally I cannot understand how anybody manages to exist in the country. If anybody who is anybody does, the country always bores me to death.' "'Ah!' said Cecily. "'This is what the newspapers call agricultural depression, is it not? I believe the aristocracy are suffering very much from it just at present. It is almost an epidemic amongst them, I have been told.' May I offer you some tea, Miss Fairfax? Thank you, said Gwendolen. Detestable girl, she thought to herself, but I require tea. Sugar? said Cecily sweetly. No, thank you, said Gwendolen. Sugar is not fashionable any more. Cecily looked angrily at her. She took up the tongs and put four lumps of sugar into the cup. Cake or bread and butter? "'said Cecily severely. "'Bread and butter, please. "'Cake is rarely seen in the best houses nowadays.' "'Cecily cut a very large slice of cake "'and put it on the tray. "'Hand that to Miss Fairfax,' she said to Merriman. "'Merriman did so, and left with the footman. Gwendolen took a sip of tea and grimaced. "'She put down the cup at once, "'reached out her hand to the bread and butter,' looked at it and found it was cake. "'She rose in indignation. "'You have filled my tea with lumps of sugar, "'and though I asked most distinctly for bread and butter, "'you have given me cake. "'I am known for the gentleness of my disposition "'and the extraordinary sweetness of my nature, "'but I warn you, Miss Cardew, you may go too far.' "'Cecily rose. "'To save my poor, innocent, trusting boy "'from the machinations of any other girl— "'there are no lengths to which I would not go.' "'From the moment I saw you I distrusted you,' said Gwendolen. "'I felt that you were false and deceitful. "'I am never deceived in such matters. "'My first impressions of people are invariably right.' "'It seems to me, Miss Fairfax,' said Cecily, "'that I am trespassing on your valuable time. "'No doubt you have many other calls of a similar character "'to make in the neighbourhood. And just as things were coming to a nearly violent head, Jack came up upon them. Ernest," said Gwendolen, catching sight of him. "My own Ernest," Gwendolen, darling," said Jack, and went in to kiss her. Gwendolen drew back a moment. "May I ask if you are engaged to be married to this young lady?" She pointed to Cecily. "To dear little Cecily?" "Of course not," said Jack. What could have put such an idea into your pretty little head? Thank you, said Gwendolen. You may. And she offered him her cheek. I knew there must be some misunderstanding, Miss Fairfax. The gentleman whose arm is at present round your waist is my guardian, Mr. John Worthing. I beg your pardon. This is Uncle Jack. Jack! said Gwendolen, pulling Jack and eyeing him. Oh! At this point Algernon came up upon them, and Cecily brightened right up. "'Here is Ernest.' Algernon went straight over to Cecily without noticing anyone else. "'My own love.' And he went in to kiss her. Cecily drew back. "'A moment, Ernest. May I ask you, are you engaged to be married to this young lady?' Algernon looked round. "'To what young lady?' "'Good heavens. Gwendolen. "'Yes.' "'To good heavens, Gwendolen! I mean, to Gwendolen, <laughs> "'Of course not!' said Algernon. "'What could have put such an idea into your pretty little head?' "'Thank you,' Cecily said, and presented her cheek to be kissed. "'You may.' And Algernon kissed her. "'I felt that there was some slight error, Miss Cardew,' said Gwendolen, "'The gentleman who is now embracing you is my cousin, Mr. Algernon Moncrief.' Cecily broke away from Algernon. "'Algernon Moncrief! "'Oh!' "'The two girls moved towards each other "'and put their arms round each other's waists "'as if for protection. "'Cecily eyed Algernon. "'Are you called Algernon?' "'I cannot deny it.' "'Oh!' Gwendolen stared daggers at Jack. "'Is your name really John?' "'Jack stood rather proudly. "'I could deny it if I liked. "'I could deny anything if I liked.' "'but my name certainly is John. "'It has been John for years.' "'Cecily said to Gwendolen, "'A gross deception has been practised on both of us! "'My poor wounded Cecily! "'My sweet wronged Gwendolen." Gwendolen spoke slowly and seriously. "'You will call me sister, will you not?' "'And they embraced. "'Jack and Algernon groaned and began to walk up and down. "'Cecily brightened up. There is just one question I would like to be allowed to ask my guardian. An admirable idea, said Gwendolen. Mr. Worthing, there is just one question I would like to be permitted to put to you. Where is your brother Ernest? We are both engaged to be married to your brother Ernest, so it is a matter of some importance to us to know where your brother Ernest is at present. Jack ran his tongue over his top teeth nervously. Gwendolen. "'Cecily, it is very painful for me "'to be forced to speak the truth. "'It is the first time in my life "'that I have ever been reduced to such a painful position, "'and I am really quite inexperienced "'in doing anything of the kind. "'However, I will tell you quite frankly "'that I have no brother, Ernest. "'I have no brother at all. "'I never had a brother in my life, "'and I certainly have not the smallest intention "'of ever having one in the future.' "'No brother at all?' said Cecily, surprised. None. Had you never a brother of any kind? asked Gwendolen. Never, said Jack. Not even of any kind. I'm afraid it is quite clear, Cecily, said Gwendolen, that neither of us is engaged to be married to any one. It is not a very pleasant position for a young girl suddenly to find herself in, is it? said Cecily. Let us go into the house. They will hardly venture to come after us there. "'No,' said Cecily, looking at the two cowering figures before them. "'Men are so cowardly, aren't they?' "'And they retired into the house with scornful looks.' Jack turned to Algernon. "'This ghastly state of things is what you call Bunbury, I suppose.' "'Yes,' said Algernon. "'And a perfectly wonderful Bunbury it is, "'the most wonderful Bunbury I have ever had in my life.' "'You've no right whatsoever to Bunbury here.' "'That is absurd,' said Algernon. "'One has a right to Bunbury anywhere one chooses. "'Every serious Bunburyist knows that.' "'Serious Bunburyist, good heavens!' said Jack. "'Well, one must be serious about something, "'if one wants to have any amusement in life. "'I happen to be serious about Bunburying. "'What on earth you are serious about, "'I haven't got the remotest idea. "'About everything I should fancy.' "'You have such an absolutely trivial nature.' "'Well,' said Jack, "'the only small satisfaction I have in the whole of this wretched business "'is that your friend Bunbury is quite exploded. "'You won't be able to run down to the country quite so often as you used to, dear Algy, "'and a very good thing, too.' "'Your brother is a little off colour, isn't he, dear Jack?' said Algernon. "'You won't be able to disappear to London quite so frequently as your wicked custom was.' And not a bad thing either. As for your conduct towards Miss Cardew, I must say that your taking in a sweet, simple, innocent girl like that is quite inexcusable. To say nothing of the fact that she is my ward, said Jack. I can see no possible defence at all for your deceiving a brilliant, clever, thoroughly experienced young lady like Miss Fairfax. To say nothing of the fact that she is my cousin. I wanted to be engaged to Gwendolen, said Jack. "'That is all. I love her. "'Well, I simply want to be engaged to Cecily. I adore her. "'There is certainly no chance of your marrying Miss Cardew. "'I don't think there is much likelihood, Jack, "'of you and Miss Fairfax being united.' "'Well, that is no business of yours,' said Jack. "'If it was my business, I wouldn't talk about it.' And Algernon sat down and began to eat the muffins at the tea-table. "'It is very vulgar to talk about one's business.' Only people like stockbrokers do that, and then merely at dinner parties. How can you sit there, calmly eating muffins, when we are in this horrible trouble? I can't make out!' Jack said through his teeth. "'You seem to me to be perfectly heartless.' "'Well, I can't eat muffins in an agitated manner,' said Algernon. "'The butter would probably get on my cuffs. One should always eat muffins quite calmly. It is the only way to eat them.' "'I say it's perfectly heartless you're eating muffins at all under the circumstances.' "'When I am in trouble, eating is the only thing that consoles me,' said Algernon. "'Indeed, when I am in really great trouble, as any one who knows me intimately will tell you, "'I refuse everything except food and drink. "'At the present moment I am eating muffins because I am unhappy. "'Besides, I am particularly fond of muffins.' "'Well,' said Jack, That is no reason why you should eat them all in that greedy way.' and he took the muffins from Algernon, who in turn offered him a tea-cake. "'I wish you would have tea-cake instead. I don't like tea-cake.' "'Good heavens!' said Jack. "'I suppose a man may eat his own muffins in his own garden.' "'But you have just said it was perfectly heartless to eat muffins. I said it was perfectly heartless of you under the circumstances. That is a very different thing.' And he took a large bite of a muffin. "'That may be,' said Algernon, "'but the muffins are the same.' "'and he took the muffin-dish back from Jack. Algy, I wish to goodness you would go. "'You can't possibly ask me to go without having some dinner. "'It's absurd,' said Algernon. "'I never go without my dinner. "'No one ever does, except vegetarians and people like that. "'Besides, I have just made arrangements with Dr. Chasuble "'to be christened at a quarter to six under the name of Ernest. "'My dear fellow, the sooner you give up that nonsense, the better.' "'I made arrangements this morning with Dr. Chargible "'to be christened myself at five-thirty, "'and I naturally will take the name of Ernest. Gwendolen would wish it. "'We can't both be christened Ernest. "'It's absurd. "'Besides, I have a perfect right to be christened, if I like. "'There is no evidence at all "'that I have ever been christened by anybody. "'I should think it extremely probable I never was, "'and so does Dr. Chargible. "'It is entirely different in your case. "'You have been christened already.' "'Yes, but I have not been christened for years,' said Algernon. "'Yes, but you have been christened. That is the important thing.' "'Quite so,' said Algernon. "'So I know my constitution can stand it. If you are not quite sure about your ever having been christened, I must say I think it rather dangerous your venturing on it now. It may make you very unwell. You can hardly have forgotten that someone very closely connected with you was very nearly carried off this week in Paris by a severe chill.' Yes, said Jack, but you said yourself that a severe chill was not hereditary. It used not to be, I know, but I dare say it is now, said Algernon. Science is always making wonderful improvements in things. Jack snatched the muffin dish again. Oh, that is nonsense! You're always talking nonsense! Jack! You're at the muffins again, I wish you wouldn't. There are only two left. And Algernon took them both. "'I told you I was particularly fond of muffins. "'But I hate tea-cake. "'Why on earth, then, do you allow tea-cake to be served up for your guests? "'What ideas you have of hospitality?' "'Algernon, I have already told you to go. "'I don't want you here. "'Why don't you go?' "'I haven't quite finished my tea yet. "'And there is still one muffin left.' "'Jack groaned and sank into a chair, "'while Algernon continued eating.' Part three. Gwendolen and Cecily were inside the manor house, looking out the window at the two gentlemen in the garden. The fact that they did not follow us at once into the house, as anyone else would have done, seems to me to show that they have some sense of shame left, said Gwendolen. They have been eating muffins, said Cecily. That looks like repentance. They watched them a little further. They don't seem to notice us at all. Couldn't you cough? Asked Gwendolen. But I haven't got a cough. They're looking at us. What a frontery! Said Gwendolen. They're approaching. That's very forward of them. Said Cecily. Let us preserve a dignified silence. Said Gwendolen. Certainly, it's the only thing to do now. And Jack and Algernon come through the door and up to them, whistling some dreadful popular air from a British opera. This dignified silence seems to produce an unpleasant effect, said Gwendolen, a most distasteful one. But we will not be the first to speak. Certainly not, said Gwendolen. Of course, after some time, Gwendolen simply can't take it any more. Mr. Worthing, I have something very particular to ask you. Much depends on your reply. Gwendolen, said Cecily, your common sense is invaluable. Mr. Moncrief, kindly answer me the following question. "'Why did you pretend to be my guardian's brother?' "'In order that I might have the opportunity of meeting you,' said Algernon. "'Cecily can't help but smile at this. "'That certainly seems a satisfactory explanation, does it not?' "'Yes, dear,' said Gwendolen, narrowing her eyes at Algernon. "'If you can believe him.' "'I don't. "'But that does not affect the wonderful beauty of his answer.' "'True,' said Gwendolen. "'In matters of grave importance, style, not sincerity, is the vital thing. "'Mr. Worthing, what explanation can you offer to me for pretending to have a brother? "'Was it in order that you might have an opportunity of coming up to town to see me as often as possible?' "'Can you doubt it, Miss Fairfax?' said Jack. "'I have the gravest doubts upon the subject,' said Gwendolen. "'But I intend to crush them. "'This is not the moment for German scepticism. She moved to Cecily. Their explanation seemed to be quite satisfactory, especially Mr. Worthing's. That seems to me to have the stamp of truth upon it. "'I am more than content with what Mr. Moncrief said,' said Cecily. "'His voice alone inspires one with absolute credulity.' "'Then you think we should forgive them?' "'Yes. I mean, no,' said Cecily. "'True, I had forgotten. There are principles at stake that one cannot surrender. Which of us should tell them?' "'The task is not a pleasant one.' "'Can we not both speak at the same time?' "'An excellent idea,' said Gwendolen. "'I nearly always speak at the same time as other people. "'Will you take the time from me?' "'Certainly.' Gwendolen counted to three with her finger, and then, together, Gwendolen and Cecily said, "'Your Christian names are still an insuperable barrier. "'That is all.' Jack and Algernon then spoke together. "'Our Christian names? "'Is that all?' "'but we are going to be christened this afternoon.' Gwendolen's breath was taken away at this. "'For my sake you are prepared to do this terrible thing?' "'I am,' said Jack. "'Cecily appeared equally unprepared. "'To please me you are ready to face this fearful ordeal?' "'I am,' said Algernon. "'How absurd to talk of the equality of the sexes! "'Where questions of self-sacrifice are concerned, "'men are infinitely beyond us.' "'We are.' "'said Jack, clasping hands enthusiastically with Algernon. "'They have moments of physical courage "'of which we women know absolutely nothing.' Gwendolen's heart swells as she opens her arms to Jack. "'Darling!' "'Algernon goes up to Cecily, opening his own arms. "'Darling!' "'And they all embrace, "'and all is right with the world, "'until Merriman comes in.' Seeing the two couples, he coughed loudly. <coughs> Lady Bracknell. Good heavens, said Jack. And while opening the French doors to the garden, much resembling the parting of the Red Sea, Merriman ushered in Lady Bracknell herself. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Importance of Being Earnest, Part 3 of 4, by Oscar Wilde. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your Classic Audiobook Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Every little bit helps. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Please enjoy this sample of the audiobook Lost Frequency, a novel of sound, speed, power, and greed by Barry Swanson. Now available at Audible.com. Chapter 1. September, 1964 The mother turned to look back at her young son, who, in typical form, had become distracted, wandering slightly off the meandering path the family had taken that morning. Fortunately, the young one's aunt was keeping an eye, and she gently nudged him forward giving a quick, knowing look up ahead to her sister, who nodded a silent thanks. The sun was just starting to pierce the eastern sky over the San Juan Islands of the Pacific Northwest, and light was beginning to glisten off the calm, black water of what's now known as the Salish Sea. A light fog had formed over the water, reflecting the orange-purple glow of the nascent sunrise— It was a few hundred yards off of the rocky sandstone shore, and the air was still and the water serene, and all that could be heard was the cause of a nearby flock of gulls feeding off of a school of eulicon. From below the water, a dark shape, darker than the water, rose quickly towards the surface, breaking the calm and rising more, revealing the massive dorsal fin of an orca. From the orca's blowhole came a puff of mist like steam, spraying ten feet into the air. Had one been watching from a distance, through the dissipating fog, the sound of his expelled breath would have been heard an instant later. Then, the orca took in a giant breath and was gone down below. Shortly, the entire family of orcas was breaking the water, including the mother and her son. The sky was lightning as the sun rose higher, and some of the more curious whales spy-hopped to make a visual inspection of the environment above the waterline. Spy-hopping is common among orcas and consists of a whale rising straight up and holding itself vertically, keeping its head and pectoral fins above the surface by kicking its strong tail flukes. Some of the orcas swam inverted and slapped their tails on the water. The area so somnolent and still just moments before, was now alive with movement and otherworldly sounds. The sun became engrossed in a game of hide-and-seek with his juvenile cousins, the sunlight now streaming below the surface, casting shadows through the bull kelp, creating good hiding places. The young whales reveled in the game, making whistling and clicking noises to register their delight. But soon... The mother came along, and the son followed her. He didn't always. As an eighteen-month-old youngster, he was gaining confidence and beginning to test the limits of his independence. He was becoming curious and inquisitive about the world around him, often going off on his own for short periods, albeit within the general confines of the pod. But now he followed his mother. It was breakfast time. In short order, the mother echolocated something thirty yards away, and, from the echolocation feedback, she knew it to be a salmon. Moreover, through her sensitive sonar, she could also discern from the salmon's elevated heart rate that it had become aware it was being preyed on. She moved in quickly for the kill, her son in pursuit. Fifteen feet below the surface, she pinned the salmon to the volcanic rock wall, then manipulated it into her strong jaws, where she cradled it, turning then to present the meal to her son. He took what he needed and left the rest for her. The salmon was a Chinook salmon, the preferred meal of the family for its nutritive benefits and oil. But the next salmon the mother seized was a Keta, or Chum salmon. Chum salmon have fewer nutrients. However, they're smaller, making this species of salmon perfect for the mother's purpose of teaching her son. It was her own unique approach. In fact, For the first few years of her own life, the mother preferred chum salmon. She found it milder and more palatable than the heavier-tasting Chinook. Quickly, she released the salmon from her jaws, allowing the wounded fish to swim away. The son wasted no time in going after it, taking it in his own jaws and then proudly returning to his mother, who signaled her approval. Now it was her who took the first bite. No longer on mother's milk, the sun was learning the rules of the community. Food was shared. The morning ritual and the hunting techniques of the whales had been passed down from the generations that had come before them. Like all groups of orcas, this one was matrilineal, the line of descent coming from the female side. The male offspring of orcas stay with their mothers their whole lives, leaving only to hunt or mate, and even then only for a few hours at a time as many as four generations might travel together at any given time. The particular matriline that this mother and son belonged to was part of several matrilines that were closely related by blood. Such an assemblage is known as a pod, and pods can reach up to 40 members or more, all traveling together, a socially cohesive community. Pods can sometimes join other pods in clans. The defining characteristic is, being a shared language. It's a complex and orderly structure, more ordered and unified than perhaps any community on Earth. But, of course, none of this was known at the time. Eight miles away, in Friday Harbor, the scene was chaotic. At one end of the marina, men in windbreakers and canvas shoes were hurriedly loading gear into two large fishing trawlers and four runabouts, motors all running, the salt air thick with the smell of exhaust. Get her loaded up, boys, someone yelled. Careful with that equipment, someone else shouted. No, 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 stow the netting on the starboard side. Ain't you listening? Young Dr. James Parker looked on at the frenzied activity from the flying bridge of the larger of the two trawlers. His childhood home was nearby, a mile south. Friday Harbor was on the eastern shore of San Juan Island, the main island of the San Juan Islands archipelago that sits off the northwest coast of the state of Washington. Parker's boyhood had been spent on the islands, a boyhood full of fishing and boating and hiking along the jagged shoreline of the isles. By the age of 11, he was running his father's old Chris Craft seemingly everywhere, his curiosity about the ocean in which his island home was situated never ending. It was hardly a surprise that he became a marine biologist, a doctor of marine biology at that. But his career path had taken him from his beloved home, and he vowed to one day return. And it wouldn't be to live in the cramped, three-room clapboard house that was all his fisherman father could afford. Not that his father hadn't worked hard. As a teenager, he'd found employment in the lime quarries and kilns, for which San Juan Island was famous. lime was used as the primary mortar for masonry buildings, and there was a time when the lime business was booming. The majority of the lime used to rebuild San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake came from San Juan Island. But the local industry suffered during the Great Depression, and most of the kilns went under. This was the time James's father had worked in the lime business. By necessity, he changed careers and did what seemingly every other able-bodied young man did around the San Juan Islands at the time. He fished, working as a mate on a trawler, harvesting the salmon in which the Salish Sea was rich. But rich would never be a word anybody would use to describe James's father. For James, it would be different. No low-wage labor jobs for him. No little clapboard house. He'd own a big, modern house right on the water, with a big boat to match, probably across the channel from San Juan Island on Orcas Island, the largest of the San Juan Islands. That dream seemed far away, though. As far away as San Juan Island was from Los Angeles, the home of the growing marine park he was operating. The park was originally a glorified aquarium in Santa Monica that James had initially been hired to manage. But his expertise and forward thinking had earned him a piece of the action. The original ownership had envisioned more of a carnival-type park, with nautically-themed rides that James found insipid at best and tacky at worst. He'd convinced them to expand on the aquarium idea, counting on the natural curiosity people had about the ocean and sea life. He opened a shark tank exhibit and a sea lion attraction, and quadrupled the size of the aquariums, bringing in exotic fish from all over. A couple of dolphins were added, and before long, the park's attendance doubled, then tripled. James became a partner in the Enterprise. But he wasn't through. In the back of his mind was the idea of expanding the park further, and making it into every bit as much of a destination attraction as Disneyland on the other side of the city, which had opened just a little over a decade before. For that, He knew he needed something new, something special, something big. Spotter boy to Black Death, you read me, over. The VHF radio crackled, and James reached down and grabbed the mic. At the same time, he saw the small seaplane overhead, rocking port, then starboard, as it flew low over the marina. I got you, spotter boy, James said into the mic. You're looking good up there, Gus, over. Listen, you guys about ready. The pod's about eight miles from here, a couple miles north of Roach Harbor, 4840 north, 123 west. Copy? Copy that, Gus. We're showing off now. Over. Within minutes, the men were all aboard, and the small fleet was out of the harbor and into the open water, the sea churning behind it, the wakes of the trawlers cutting large waves into the flat sea. James Parker was after a killer whale, an orca two of them, to be precise. The plan was to kill an adult male, from which a perfect replica would be made, something to hang over the newly proposed entryway to the park, a spacious and welcoming open area for which the whale would serve as the ideal focal point. The second whale would be a young juvenile that the fleet would capture. James's trawler was big enough to carry the massive water tank that would hold the juvenile, then the whale would be shipped alive to Santa Monica, where he would become the star attraction of the park. If they kept him healthy, he could reach the size of twenty-five feet or more, and weigh in excess of eight tons. But the expedition was not without risk. Based on all that was known at the time, orcas had earned their nickname, Killer Whales, and the men on the boats were not without their misgivings, and even downright fears. They were man-killers, these whales, no less an authority than the United States Navy had confirmed as much. Actual eyewitness testimony had been hard to come by, and even James, as a boy, seeing the pods of orcas around the San Juan Islands, could never recall an instance of an orca attacking a boat or otherwise presenting itself as a threat to humans. Nor could his father, who was always regaling his son with harrowing stories of his days at sea, Nevertheless, there was no sense in taking chances. Conventional wisdom and common sense told James that killer whales were killers. It was axiomatic. The plan was for James's boat and the spotter plane to drive the pod into Reed Harbor on Stewart Island to the north, or, if the pod turned south, drive them into Nelson Bay on Henry Island, southwest of Roach Harbor. The rest of the boats would cruise the perimeter, and move steadily inward. Explosives would be used to create loud underwater noise, sufficient to confuse the whales, or for defense, if it came to that. The men were armed with guns as well. Once the whales were driven into the harbor or bay, massive nets would be positioned across the entrance to keep them from escaping. It would not be an easy plan to carry out, and James knew that the fleet was going to have a fight on its hands how great it was going to be to have that large orca at the entrance to the park, and how special to have a live whale in captivity for all to see and watch grow. He could live for decades, the park's best investment yet. James looked out over the water ahead and smiled at the thought of the young orca out there somewhere, about to become a part of history.